Welcome to Crunching Tackles, where we break down the hardest hitting social issues in sports. On today's show, we're covering a bunch of different subjects, including Von Miller, John Rahm, Shohei Otani, and Godzilla. Yes, that Godzilla. My name is Chad Wiley, and with me, as always, is John Nekrasov. And John, how are you doing today as we enter what is going to be one of the more jam-packed podcasts we've had in, I want to say, a few months? Yeah, I feel like normally we are like, there's a really big topic, and there's like nothing else to talk about, so we just kind of spend a lot of time there. And this week, it feels like there's nothing that we can spend like 40 minutes on, but there's like a million things that we could spend 20 minutes on and talk for like four hours. Um, so we're going to do our best to probably try to not do that, but also sometimes we take a long time to talk about things, so we'll, we'll see how this goes. <laughs> this definitely could be a longer one, but uh, yeah, I would say this is at least two big stories and then a bunch of medium stories and not really anything that's super small. So, uh, I would say the important thing though, is that Godzilla talk will be at the end. So like you have to listen to the whole thing. That's correct. Or Very you important. have to go f- or you have to find your bookmark. Maybe we just won't put a bookmark for you for Godzilla and you just have to find it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that note, John, do you want to just dive right into the sports? I think we should do it. Okay. So first off, we're going to talk about the final college football rankings that have come out. And um, it is number one, Michigan, number two, Texas. And I'm sorry, number two, Washington, number three, Texas, number four, Alabama, number five, Florida State, number six, Georgia, number seven, Ohio State. And John... Let me just throw it to you this way. Do you agree with former President Donald Trump on his Truth Social account that that Florida State not making the top four was because Ron DeSantis didn't do enough um, lobbying for the program? Uh, my lawyers have advised me not to comment on that, and we're going we're gonna to move on. No, no I think really? it's actually—I think it's very funny that— um, Someone like Donald Trump feels like it's the moment to comment on this. It's like that that one time when he I forget what do you remember which quarterback it was that he was like, This quarterback is a tremendously talented quarterback and it's like the, no, it's Tua. He's talking about Tua. I love it when politicians weigh in on sports figures, honestly. I uh, it's Famously, one of my favorite that's something things. that we enjoy. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that is kind of like what this podcast is all about. That being said, you know, this is a couple I guess weeks old, a week or two old at this point. Um, But we do think it's important to talk about just because of the ramifications of it. And obviously this is the last year um, before we change the 12 team college football playoff model, which we've covered on this show before. And I think this is just an indicator of why we are switching to a 12 team playoff. Um, You know, there are obvious financial gains that the NCAA makes by expanding to 12 teams that is not just like a, you know, something that's being done for the good of the sport necessarily. But what we're going to do when we change away from this four-team system that's done basically based on committee voting entirely is that I think we're going to see a lot more fair of a system. I don't think that it's fair to Florida State, really, for them to be left out. But I do think it's the right call for them to be left out, to be honest. And I don't know. I don't know what you think as someone who's kind of kept up with the college football committee for a lot longer than me. Um, but it does seem to me like FSU without their quarterback. Um, FSU fans are complaining about that, but it is part of the official rules that the college football playoff committee uses to determine the rankings. If you are missing star players 
then they do count that in as well as strength of schedule, which the ACC was not particularly good. Um, I feel like all four of these teams would beat FSU. And so to me, it makes sense for them to be left out. Um, but I know that people have a lot of disagreements on that. I don't know. What do you think? No, it's worth mentioning that this has been, I think, in the history of the four-team playoff, one of the more contentious final decisions. And mm-hmm. obviously the big snub is Ohio State. But I completely agree with you when you think about like when you look at the top four teams and say which one of them would you replace for a team like Florida State, you've got the two one-loss teams, Texas and Alabama, but they both won their conferences and beat top higher-ranked higher opponents. Texas, of course, beat Alabama when Alabama was number three at the time. They um, And Alabama knocked off you know, number one Georgia to win the SEC championship. So when you look at those two, it's like, well, I think I would take both of those. Then the other undefeated champion would have been that maybe you could have swapped for was Washington. But Washington was ranked high in the college football power ranking playoff ranking every single week. They had incredible wins, including beating uh, at the time they beat Oregon when Oregon was at number eight. And then they beat Oregon when they were at number five in the uh, Pac-12 championship game. And Florida State, I think we're kind of the best team in the worst of the conferences. Mm-hmm. Um, they only played, I think, two teams in the ACC who were ranked at the time. And one of those teams was Duke and the other was Louisville. And they were like 16 and 14 respectively. So it's just not, they did beat, they did beat Florida State. Or they did, they did, Florida State did beat LSU week one. And that LSU was ranked five at the time, but they obviously didn't end up in the top five. They didn't, their season didn't quite turn out. They ended the year at 13. So, they just didn't have the strength of schedule. They didn't have the quality wins. They weren't in a good enough conference. And I think Washington has a clear case. And I do think Texas and Alabama both took really, really quality losses, I think. And they both um, had just huge statement wins, especially in, in conference championship week. And so, yeah, I have no complaints. But I understand why uh, Florida State fans would feel upset about it. Right. I guess the question is... Is an undefeated Power 5 championship worth more than an SEC championship with one loss? And I think when you rank the strength of schedule of playing the SEC versus the ACC, I think having one loss and winning the SEC is probably worth more than not losing a single game in the ACC. Um, Again, that is a contentious statement. Um, But the SEC is just head and shoulders above the other conferences overall. Um, and then you obviously have the Big Ten, which Michigan came out on top. Um, so I don't know. I think I think next year is going to be interesting because what we would have had if we used the NCAA did like a kind of a release of what the playoffs would have been if we'd had next year's system this year, right? Which is where the top four get a bye, and then you have eight teams that play each other in the first round to determine who gets it, makes it in. Um, and you would have had as a, for, so first of all, as a refresher next year, the top six conference champions all automatically get places in the championship in the playoff. And then the best six out of the rest of the teams in the ranking at the end of the season, make it in. Right. Um, so what that so would that have meant, six, that, that sixth conference champion spot means that one of the group of five schools that's exactly right. Gets in. Which would have meant Liberty this year, fascinatingly enough. So Oklahoma was number 12 in this year's final ranking. So Oklahoma would have been bumped out. Um, 
because Liberty, though not ranked in the top 12, was the highest ranked uh, conference champion because they were undefeated that did not um, play in a Power 5 conference. So we would have seen a playoff this year with Liberty playing actually number 5 Florida State as um, in the first round of the playoffs, which I think would have been interesting um, as both former LU students um you know i think we both have a vested interest there but i don't know i think i honestly think liberty could have won that which would have been an interesting i um, i personally don't think liberty deserved to be the highest ranked group of five team well the conference champion though i think sm i think smu liberty didn't lose a game i understand that they didn't play anybody either yeah i mean that's also true you are like we're in an interesting spot where I think things will get contentious for that last spot in the top six. Yeah. Um, just because it is hard to schedule power five um, teams when you're kind of at that like aspiring team status. Um, and I think there's something that you brought up that we should talk about to kind of round this out. Um, and that's that the NCAA is trying to change rules for the richest schools in the sport. And the concern is that that may actually create a bigger barrier for those kind of group of five teams, um, as well as especially much smaller schools. Yeah, so essentially this is a proposal by Charlie Baker, who's the president of the NCAA. And this proposal is for schools can opt into a subdivision of college sports, particularly college football. And the requirements for being in this subdivision is a system that in some ways is going to be compensating directly the student athletes. The system calls for a minimum investment of $30,000 per athlete for half of the student athletes at a program across all sports. It has to be equally distributed among female and male players as determined by title nine. And this is, this money essentially goes into a trust fund that is used for uh, quote unquote educational related expenses for college athletes. That's obviously all of this is very vague. There's no indication of if this is going to be on top of athletic scholarship or a replacement for athletic scholarship. There's no indication on what types of things this education related money can be used for. But the idea here is that rich teams who can afford to do this to pay a minimum of $15,000 per athlete that they have or the way they word it is $30,000 for half of your athletes. Um, you know, for an SEC school on average, if they kept their current amount of athletic programs, that would be almost $8 million a year, which you look at a school like Alabama, you think easy. But when you look at a school like, you know, a small group of five school, like even SMU or a Division two school, it doesn't seem possible. Now, what makes this okay is that this is kind of an optional opt-in type of thing where a school can choose if they want to participate or not. Kind of like how the FBS as a as a division as a subdivision of Division One college football has operated separately from other parts of college football, and so this is just going to heighten kind of the caste system between the super rich teams that can afford to do this and the teams that can't. And presumably, what it means is that only the teams that opt into this will be competing in the college football playoffs will be competing for national championships. This probably won't have the same effect on March Madness or other things where any Division One school, whether they're FBS or FCS, can participate in March Madness. So we'll just have to see how this goes. I'm also interested to see the ramifications this has on smaller and non-profitable collegiate sports. I think the fact that this has to be equally distributed to women 
means that something like gymnastics, volleyball, women's basketball are going to survive. But when schools are trying to decide if they want to go all in on their football and basketball programs, they're going to have to decide if they want to cut some of their Olympic sports in order to reduce the number of athletes and therefore lowering the total cost of this expense. Hmm. I do think that like what we're seeing obviously is a very intense stratification at the top of college sports. Um, But I think what's interesting is that like you can draw a lot of comparisons between that and the European Super League in soccer that we've talked about many times, right? Where you take a program or a school or a team that has enough resources already that other teams can't compete with them at the top of the sport and then say that the competition isn't really worthwhile for us to even be connected to you. Um, And what's interesting about this proposition is that kind of the vaguely couched terms imply that you can kind of create your own rules for that subdivision of college athletics. So there's going to be ramifications beyond just the finances here that will dictate potentially a system where you actually couldn't be a smaller school and move into that over time, right? Mm -hmm. There could be a challenge, right? If they actually create kind of a locked off group eventually where a team like Liberty might be frozen out, you know, obviously Liberty has kind of already jumped into the, the sort of the cabal of big college teams, if you will, to a degree, but like a new team like that, that's trying to just get a bunch of investment and make the jumps through the ladders. I would guess that's going to get a lot harder because the actual income isn't being siphoned down to you through TV deals and things like that. Um, so I do, I do expect that this is going to be a huge, if that actually happens, I expect that that would be a huge <clears throat> change for college sports. And I expect that the playoff that we're going to get next year is not going to be the final edition of the college football playoff by any means. No, we don't feel like we're approaching perfect. We've, we mm-hmm. are. I think this is better, but this feel this still feels like in many ways just trying to put duct tape on a broken system. Right. I mean, we're just every every single iteration here is a step toward professionalization of college sports. Right. That's the reality. We may always kind of maintain the veneer of being tied to the NCAA, but what this is, right, is the creation of a separate financial entity for the biggest sports um, with throughout college sports, specifically football and basketball. And I can definitely imagine a world where, you know, these athletes are just actually paid at some point in the future. Well, that's, I mean, that's, this is what this proposal is is a step for. Yeah. Is, yeah, literally. No, but like salary. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's possible. It yeah. definitely is. John, as we continue to hop around the sports landscape, I want to just briefly mention um, the inaugural NBA in-season tournament is now completed. <laughs> and the Los Angeles Lakers will forever get your Jeopardy questions out. Who won the first inaugural NBA in-season tournament? The answer is the Los Angeles Lakers, who defeated the Indiana Pacers. And... I watched a little bit of this as it went on. I don't think it was super compelling. They had special jerseys. They changed the the look of the floor of the courts. Everybody, it, it was very strange looking. I did not like it at all. I didn't yeah, see that. The players seemed kind of confused what was going on. And so I think I only bring this up to say the 
the globalization of the NBA has kind of gone two ways, and this is a way in which it's clearly indicating that soccer is influencing the way the NBA wants to wants to function, particularly in the sense of an in-season tournament, which is what soccer has, where on one weekend you're playing in your league, and then on the Wednesday you're playing in some sort of domestic cup, and then back to the league. This kind of had the same feel. You're playing you're you're kind of alternating between playing just regular regular season NBA games and then games that are part of this in-season tournament. It was a group play system which is very similar to the way that soccer tournaments work. Even what it was called, the, the trophy was called the NBA Cup, which sounds very <laughs> soccery. You know, normally we 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 name our trophies after famous people, the Lord Stanley's Cup, the the Larry O'Brien Trophy, the Super Bowl. Um and so just calling it NBA Cup is very much like the FA Cup or other other soccer kind of things. So, yeah, I don't know if you had any thoughts or paid any attention to this, but I just, I just think it's an interesting trend that's worth noting. So I'm just going to preface this. I, I didn't pay it any attention at all other than seeing this, the fact that players were kind of confused. Um, but I'm kind of curious for you, do these games count toward regular season standings or are they just extra games? That's what I'm my interested about. I think some do and some don't. What? Um, my understanding is that because every team has to play the same number of games, my understanding is that the group games counted because everyone played them. I see. And then the quarterfinals, semifinals, and final did not count because some teams were not playing in that tier. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so were they were they one-off games or series or were they actual series? They were all, no, one-off games. Interesting. Was it at all interesting? Like once you hit the playoff? Like I feel like the idea of one-off basketball games in the NBA is an interesting idea. I mean, it was interesting in the sense that like the Indiana Pacers made the final. Like I don't think the Indiana Pacers, like when we get down to May and June, I don't think the Indiana Pacers are going to be a right a contending team in the Eastern Conference, and yet they they obviously made it. So like that's imp- that's cool. Hmm. Um, I didn't. If you're asking me if there was like a noticeable advancement in, in the quality of play, I can't say that I necessarily <laughs> noticed that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think it was fine. Like I think people cared a decent amount. They tried a decent amount. Uh, LeBron had a great tournament, played really well, put up good numbers, won MVP, the whole thing. So like, it's exactly kind of how you would expect it to go at the end of things with, with the, the greatest player of our generation still being great. But I guess I don't understand if it created an additional buzz to the popularity that NBA regular season already has. Maybe it was a little bit more televised. Maybe it had a little bit more audience. Uh, maybe that final game was really popular, but I didn't feel any sort of extra buzz about it. I wouldn't say. Yeah, it's it is interesting. I guess if if the the group stage does count toward the regular season, then you're only adding in even if you win, go to the final. You're only adding in three extra games to your schedule. That's right. I guess I would have been surprised, given how much players are complaining about load management already, if they had added like a significant chunk of like extra tournament games. So that probably was a compromise that they kind of reached. I don't know. I think it's an interesting idea. I think making it part of the regular season does essentially kind of like make it sort of a moot point. Like everyone's like, yay, we want a, want a trophy, I guess. Um, yeah. I didn't hear a lot of buzz about it on my end of, that's, of social media. That's fine. That's fair enough. <laughs> um, and I, I don't want to dwell on it too much other than just to say the 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 way that soccer is now particularly influencing basketball. I'm interested to hmm. see how that continues 
And, you know, I wonder how many years we are away from not even having a playoff and just going to a point system like, like soccer does. I'm interested to see if that's even something that an, an, an American league would even consider. I mean, I was actually just talking to someone about this the other day. Wasn't baseball's original system that the American League and the National League, all the teams would play each other within their league and never play across? And then the best team at the top of the standings would play each other in the World Series? Mm-hmm. So we've actually done that already, to be fair. Yeah, true. We're moving, true. A, we're moving away from that for monetary reasons. But I don't know. I think in both, specifically in baseball, it makes a lot of sense to me. I am yeah. surprised that they moved away from it because baseball is such a cumulative sport. It kind of makes sense for the results to be driven by how many games you can win over the course of a hundred plus however season. I don't yeah. know. Maintain yeah. league purity. I agree. And we're going to come back to baseball before this podcast is over. And, and boy, yes, are we. we. Mm-hmm. But before we do that, John, our every every two weeks when we do this podcast, you always put something NFL related on our rundown. And because um, I love it, football, I you you clearly do. Um, I I do not. <laughs> um, I'll let you talk about the games, and then there's a couple I think really important stories that I want to talk about out of out of this past few weeks of NFL action. I just like would would like to say that my love for football is a hallmark of success for American culture. Like that's that's just a Titanic win. Think about that. You're like, no, we don't want to. I don't really want to talk about this sport. And I'm like, give me more of America's sport. Um, so I think that's. I think that's an important note. Um, you truly are one of us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm intentionally ignoring talking about the Titans today because they make me sad. Um, yeah. Which is why you don't like talking about football either. Um, but yeah, I think. I think there are a few. There are a few big storylines that I want to get to. Um, Number one is just that we are in a very interesting spot in terms of where we're going to end up come the playoffs. Obviously, there's a lot of parity, especially in the AFC with wildcard teams with like, I think there's, I'm going off the top of my head, but I think there are six teams that are seven and six that are all pushing for a wildcard spot at the moment in the AFC, which is insane. Um, But we had two huge matchups. We had Bills Chiefs and Eagles Cowboys yesterday. And first of all, the Eagles who were, in terms of record, the best team in football until yesterday are now officially no longer the best team in football, both in record and also in terms of performance. Um, the Eagles secondary, which has been exposed repeatedly, even in games they've been winning recently, suddenly looked very human. Um, and their offense couldn't get going. And the Cowboys looked like an actually legitimate team. Like, I feel like yeah, we always kind of like to discount the Cowboys when it counts. I do feel like this is a different version of the Cowboys than what we've been seeing over the last few years. And like, I'm always hesitant to say that because they're always damn boys in the end. But like, I don't know. I do feel like we very well could see a 49ers Cowboys showdown in the NFC championship this year. And I don't think that is a foregone conclusion by any means. Yeah. They are the one, two seed in the NFC right now. Mm -hmm. If if the playoffs started tonight. Yeah. I think it's interesting that, I've mentioned this to you, it's just that, that in the past few years, there's been a big three in the AFC that we've been talking about. It's like the three teams. It was the Bengals, the Bills, the Chiefs. Mm-hmm. It's kind of flipped this year to the to the AF, to the the NFC, where it's the Niners, uh, the Eagles, the Cowboys are kind of the, the three teams we're talking about. Um, the NFC has been really, really good this year. 
And there's a, I, I think that when we talk about like what conference is the, is the eventual Super Bowl champion going to come out of, that's, that's where I would look as of right now. Mm-hmm. Um, we've, we've talked so much about how this year is the strangest year. And it really is. It, there, it, it's so hard to bet on one or two or even three teams that I'm like convinced that, oh, the champion's going to come out of one of these three. Because it seems like every team have had runs and they've had slumps. So the, like the Niners started out, the, the Niners slump kind of came three games there in the middle stretch. The Cowboys mm-hmm. had their slump really early on in the first few weeks. The the Eagles have had a slump of late. The Chiefs have been slumping as of late, but started out really strong after their week one loss to the, to the, to the Lions. The Lions have kind of been really, really good. There's just, there's just so much going on. We have these divisions, like, like I mean, my division, the, the AFC North, where every single team has a winning record. Like how often does that happen? Right, it's not super common that you get something like that where the the worst team right is right now are seven and six. Um, it's just a weird year, and it continues to be, and it makes it really fun, and it makes it really unpredictable. And I'm going in, you know, we're almost into January now, and I feel like I have no feel whatsoever Mm-mm. on how this playoff is going to shake out. I'm no, I, your guess, anyone's guess is as good as mine. I think we said. I'm trying to remember. I feel like we said Eagles. Did we say Eagles Chief rematch um, at the beginning of the year? I feel like I said Bills. I think you I did might, say Bills. I think I said Eagles Bills. Yeah. And I think I regret it, obviously, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I definitely regret. I definitely said at some point, I think I said at some point that the Niners were going to the Super Bowl, and then I officially revised my pick. Um, you did. You went off the Niners, yeah, which was I did a mis- go off your, the Niners. To your detriment. It, was, it was a misjudgment from my. I can't take it back now, but but I do want to talk about the Chiefs for a minute because they are the yeah. defending Super Bowl champions, and they lost to the Bills in incredibly dramatic fashion yesterday, twenty to seventeen, and they almost had a go ahead touchdown uh, in the last two minutes. A lovely throw down the middle from Mahomes to Travis Kelsey, uh, who did a. Lovely little lateral pass to Kadarius Tony, who ran it in for the go-ahead touchdown. Except much it wasn't. to Taylor Swift's exuberant joy, <laughs> as the cameras immediately showed us. But then, unfortunately, yeah, the NFL giveth and the NFL taketh away, and the league officials once again struck and said that Kadarius Tony had lined up in an offensive offsides position, which is well, and he had, he had. So let, let's just start there. He was offsides. He was. That's a fact. Yes. He was in front of the ball. That is offsides, that, officially, yes. according to the yes. rules. He was miles offside. The Chiefs had that called back. They went on to fail their attempts to make it into the end zone on that drive and lost the game. And Patrick Mahomes was infuriated. Mm-hmm. And he told the refs as much. He cussed them out in his handshake with Josh Allen. After the game, he was complaining about the call the entire time, basically saying, I can't believe you ended this game on an offensive offsides. He threw his helmet on the ground, and then him and Andy Reid both went to their press conference after the game and essentially said, we cannot believe that this call was correctly made. That was their complaint. Mahomes said, I quote, it's not what we want for the NFL. It's not what we want for football. Let us play the game. Then whatever happens, happens. And I say to that, yes, Patrick Mahomes, I agree. Except for every time over the last five years, 
that all of these calls in game-defining, playoff-defining, season-defining moments, Super Bowl-defining moments even, have gone your way and you haven't complained once about it. We literally can go back not only to the end of the Jets game this season, but the end of the Super Bowl last year, which was a marginally correct call, a uh, hold, defensive holding on, uh, I forget who the receiver was, but maybe it was on Schmitz-Suster. Um Defensive holding by the Eagles on a Chiefs receiver that ended up giving the Chiefs a fresh set of downs and allowed them to win the Super Bowl. The refs decided that game on a correct call and gave him his second ring. That's okay. You know, I didn't like it then. If you want to let the players play, you know, by all means. But if you want to take your Super Bowl ring and not talk about the refereeing decision and then complain about an equally clear, if not more clear, refereeing decision in this game, that's the most hypocritical thing I've ever seen in the sport of football. We, we talk about this in soccer, which is the difference between matters of physics and subjective decisions. Like like that defensive, I don't actually, I still to this day don't think that was defensive holding. I agree. And it was a, it was a subjective call. You have no, no idea. But when we're talking about literal geometry and <laughs> lines in space, like he says, let us play the game, Patrick. A game only exists because it has rules. <laughs> if there were not rules, it would not be a game. It would be something other than a game if there was not a scoring system and a, sh- a shape of a field and a type of ball and rules that govern how a game is played. You play the game in the rules and it, it wasn't a subjective decision. It's not like Mm-mm. pass interference. It's not like holding it's not like that. It is literally, where is the ball? Draw a line. Where is man's foot? Draw a line. Just like offsides in soccer. <laughs> and you look at the lines and you'd be like, ooh, that line is in front of that line. And that means this. You draw the lines. He's offside. There's no discussion. And the fact that he mm. you know, wanted to talk, to talk about it in his handshake with Josh Allen after the game, he goes up to Josh Allen and he's still complaining about the call. He's not saying, you know, good game, congratulations on that. He's just like, what a terrible call. It's not a good look. Embarrassing. Good look. And, and, and you know who I didn't hear complaining was our man, Travis Kelsey. America's That's man, true. Travis Kelsey, <laughs> who, let's be honest, has, has, you know, better things to worry about in his life than, than the wins and losses. He's doing quite well for himself, obviously. But um, truly, America's prince handled that classier than... Than Patrick or Andy. Well, we're going to find out on the uh, newest episode of our uh, our Big Brother podcast, shall we say, the New Heights podcast, <laughs> the number one sports podcast in America. Yeah, we'll see. I don't really listen to it, but we'll find out if he actually says something about it uh, come whenever they release their next podcast. Yeah. Um, John, if you don't mind moving on to a little bit more serious matters. Um, yeah, we do. In, in the world of the NFL. And this is a story that I can't believe hasn't come up before now. Um because this happened apparently in 2019 that uh, Bill's coach, Sean McDermott, in an attempt to um, communicate to his players the importance of teamwork and communication and coordination, used the 9-11 terrorists as a, as a positive example of how to function as a team, use teamwork, execute, and communicate. I... So we do actually have a serious story about the Bills after this. But, like, I am struggling to be 
incredibly serious about this story. Like, number one, I this should not be a big deal, I think is like the first thing we should say. Like, Are you I, sure about that? I think it's a ridiculous story. Like, this is obviously ridiculous, right? I, I don't think like, I don't think this is a sign of a character issue is what I'm saying. Like, I think this is a sign of just a very like poorly misjudged statement that's like in the top five worst analogies of all time. <laughs> like, I don't think you could convince me that Sean McDermott was trying to tell his players that the 9-11 hijackers were like good people, right? That clearly was not his intent. So I don't think this like, this is definitely in my mind, like not suspension worthy or anything like that. Anyone who says anything like that, I think that's really unreasonable, to be honest. Um, I do think that it's absurd, number one. And that he just, number two, he just needs to own up. Like he has kind of owned up to it, but he just needs to own up to the fact that it's really, really stupid to try to come up with anything positive to say about 9-11 hijackers and then compare it to your sports team. Like, it's just like, to me, that's just like unintelligent more than anything. Like, I'm not uh, calling, yeah. I'm not like, like genuinely, that's like the kind of analogy that someone who's not smart says. And I'm sure Sean McDermott is a very smart guy, but maybe he's like not very gifted in the field of like English essay exposition or something. Um, because I feel like he was probably just like standing there and was just like, you know what? This seems like a great idea in the moment. I don't know. I'm not going to like try to defend him for making the analogy, but I don't feel like it's like an earth shattering deal. That's my No, opinion. I don't think it's earth shattering and like he should be fired or anything. But yeah, I, you know, th- there are examples and, and one <laughs> that have come to mind that you and I even know the person involved where someone praised someone like Adolf Hitler for their propaganda skills and the way they influence education. That's, and yeah, the response to that was not oh so silly let's but it's not the response was what in the world like that's outside of the decorum of our culture right like for sure he was he was properly shamed in that situation and I don't I really don't think this is that different to I don't, be quite no, honest not. with you it's not he should it's be not, shamed for it it's not nothing it is like yeah. a, it is a serious thing I just wanted to set I just wanted to set the sta- the bar for the conversation we're having. Like I don't think this is we've talked about things on this podcast recently regarding statements that people are making about Al-Qaeda and 9/11 that I yeah. do think are beyond the pale. Yeah. Right? And I think it's important to establish that like he is not saying that but it's still stupid and needs to be treated as such. What's funny about me, what's funny to me about this is that he could have just as easily use the example of the soldiers who executed the attack on Osama bin Laden. That just seems to make so much more sense as for his a brand. perfect way to make the same point that he's like, if exactly. he wants to talk about communication and teamwork, like go watch zero dark 30 and then talk about seal team six. You don't have to go back to the origin of the war and use the terrorists as the example. Like we took out Osama bin Laden after coordination and communication and planning like that's the analogy you want if you have to use an analogy from our most recent middle eastern conflict i do feel like it's a it's poorly judged but i feel like the amount of comedic content which obviously snl has already started making it as have every nfl meme page but like the amount of comedic content that is coming forth from this story is is I think the just desserts that Sean McDermott deserves for creating this story in the first place. And I think the yeah. one thing, the one thing I will say 
is the Bills like Bills players have like been joining ranks and basically saying like there's like a rat in our midst who's leaked all these stories, you know, and are all like, Whoa, you know, protect yeah. the coach, blah, blah, blah. I'm sure Sean McDermott's a great guy. Everything from the team right now seems like people like him. I don't know if that's – he might not be. I don't think this is a strong indicator that he's a bad guy in people who are saying that it is. It might be a little unreasonable. But I think that if the story like this comes out, I think it's unreasonable to say that it should not be out in the public. That's correct. I think it's a little silly. I think people are blowing out of proportion on both sides. But the most reasonable thing to do is for McDermott to own the fact since it has come forth and acknowledge that it's as stupid as it sounds. Yeah. End of story. Yeah. And now now to the, the, the even more serious matter, which is the, the fact that Von Miller played the Sunday after being arrested and charged with assaulting his pregnant girlfriend. John, we've talked so much about whether or not athletes should be allowed to play in various states of legal proceedings. We've talked about um, Anthony. We've talked about Mason Greenwood. We've talked about Wander Franco. We've talked about Josh Giddy now. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is another situation where we someone has been not convicted, but charged with an actual crime, arrested, arraigned before a judge, released on bail, and was allowed to play. And I think that I've reached the point in my thinking about this after instance, after instance, after instance, where I feel comfortable saying that if you are currently charged with a crime from the moment you are charged until you are acquitted, you shouldn't be playing professional sports. That's a stance that I feel good about because it's not Mm -hmm. about social media innuendo it's not about there's there's a level of scrutiny that comes from a police investigation leading to a charge on due process with probable cause and then coming before a judge and your case not being dismissed for lack of evidence but being allowed to proceed to trial where i feel like there's been a that, that there's enough due diligence there for me to say there's enough here that you don't need to be playing i think it's true for anthony anthony I think it's true for Josh Giddy if he is actually charged with a crime as as the Oklahoma City police now begin to investigate that. And I think it's certainly true here. I do not think Von Miller should be allowed to play until he is until charges or are dismissed or he goes to court and is acquitted. I think that's exactly right. And I think that's interesting that you say that because that was the same conclusion that I came to while reading this story. And I think maybe that's where things get complicated, right? Like it makes sense to me that while Josh Giddy was not criminally charged in any way, which I don't think he is currently. Not yet. Um, but while he's not, and it's just conjecture, unless the league receives clear evidence to the contrary that they feel violates their rules, then players should be allowed to play. Yeah. Um, but I do agree that if you've been arrested and charged and the charges have not been dropped, then until they are dropped— if they are dropped, which often happens in these domestic cases, right? Like the Tyreek Hill case, yeah. um, you know, who's on pace to be, have one of the greatest NFL receiver seasons ever, you know, only a few years ago was charged with assaulting his own child. Um, and eventually those charges were dropped and nothing came of it. And the league didn't discipline him at all. Um, but, you know, criminal charges were not pressed in that situation, regardless of the reason for that. Um, And so 
there's a certain amount of power the league doesn't have there in my mind. In this circumstance, until this case is resolved, Von Miller is potentially guilty in, in not just like in actuality morally, but in a court of law, Von Miller could be found guilty of attacking his girlfriend very violently from the descriptions of what happened. And so I just I think that there is a very clear moral standard that you can establish there that really sh- shouldn't be violated for any reason until there's evidence to the contrary. You know, the police showed up at the, at the scene, saw the situation and said, you should be arrested. We have enough evidence to do that, to start this process. And while that's happening, you know, like, I wouldn't want someone like that at work if they had been charged with a similar thing, you know? Mm-hmm. So why are the, again, why is the standard any different just because he's a multi-million dollar player in the National Football League? Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about that too, like. Would I be allowed to work at my job if I was charged with a crime and then released on bail? Yeah, I don't know. Do you know the law for that? And like, well, I don't think there would be a law. I think it would be like my own workplace policy. Right. I don't, and I don't think we've had a situation at that job. I'm pretty sure that I would not be allowed to work. Like just thinking I, yeah, about it. I think in general you get fired <laughs> from yeah, most jobs. Sure. Yeah. For being arrested, regardless <laughs> of whether the charges go through. Like that's a normal standard for your workplace. Like that situation happening maybe there are extreme circumstances and then it becomes not true and then maybe you go back to the job and say these charges against me were false or or you know people may sue their employer for terminating them for not wrongful cause um but regardless like there are standards in place and these leagues continue to violate those standards and i think this will continue to be a problem until this is addressed yeah. Uh, John, do you kind of want to lead us into our, our next story as we continue this this path of depression? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is obviously different. Um, but, you know, moving over to the, the ugly financial side of things. Um, obviously, we talked about, I can't even remember what the last Saudi League discussion we even had was. I guess it was the World Cup, actually. There have been so many that they all bleed together, and I can't even, like, remember which Saudi buyout we're talking about. Um, But this time it is, I think we can safely say the biggest signing of live golf other than live golf itself. Right. 100%. This is the best player live has to date. Yeah. So John Rahm, um, who has been, I don't, is he world number one right now? He has been world number one. He has Um, been, he has been in the last like year. I'm pretty sure. Um, Made massive headlines by announcing that, He's moving to live, um, mm-hmm. which is unquestionably the biggest signing. You know, live has had multiple previous number ones, but never won this recent. Um, he's an incredible golfer. He won the Masters. Just, I think it was, he won the last Masters, right? He did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he's, you know, the now immediately going to become the poster child of live after making comments, you know, repeatedly throughout the last couple of years about how he didn't want to go. Can I, can I read one of those sport. comments? Sure. Can I yeah, read, read one of those, please? Go ahead. Read this, the is John, this is John Rahm in February of 2022. All I can say is from somebody young like myself who has his entire future ahead of him, it doesn't seem like a smart thing that is going to live. Again, the only appeal I see is monetary, right? So like I said just earlier on, I think there's a lot more to be able to play for besides just money on the PGA Tour. There's history... There's legacy. At the end of the day, I'm in this to win tournaments. 
I'm in this to play against the best in the world. And now we know that that's not true. And now we know that he actually is just in it for money. And his price was $300 million. That's exactly right. I think it's inter- I think this is interesting for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that, you know, I saw some rumors running around. I don't know if there's any substance to this and I didn't dig around more than that. Um, so I'm not going to like put this out as a fact or anything like it. Um, but I think it's, it's not wrong to say that his status in the PGA tour is different than Rory McIlroy and Tiger Woods. Right. Um, though he's, I think a better player almost unquestionably than either of them right now. Um, Rory and Tiger very much are kind of the representatives from the player side of the PGA tour. Yeah. And I think that there, to me, this is a move setting himself apart from the rest of the pack, but this is an opportunity for him to be the brand of something in a way that he was not at the PGA tour. He was one Mm -hmm. of many and he was very good, but he was still one of many. Now he is the one, um, and Rory talked to Sky Sports about this, specifically in light of the Ryder Cup, right, where he'll want to be able to play with Rom against the U.S. And he basically said, like, this divide in golf is taking golf to a point where the sport is only going to become about the majors because the, the best players are only going to be together at the four majors. They're not going to be together the rest of the year because you now have this stratified sport between the PGA Tour and Live. And so Rory's at the point, as he's talking, where Rahm's made this decision and more and more players are making this decision as the Saudis keep throwing money at the league, to the point where he's basically talking about the fact that probably a reunified sport is the only way to proceed for the actual sport of golf, which is interesting because it, it still feels like Rory and Tiger, you know, with their whole tech league and everything, like they're trying to find ways to promote the future of golf. And what you see from Rom's comments, I think it's interesting that you bring that receipt up. He doesn't talk about the future of the game of golf at all. Mm-mm. He talks about the future of John Rom, which is fine. But I think it shows a certain insularity and a certain selfishness. So like Rory and Tiger made, did not make that call, and they both could have, right? Yeah. But they chose not to, and I think John Rom did because in the end, you know, the way golf is going, he's getting his payout now. But I do think probably that merger will happen in the end. And he may be able to compete for the best trophies, but he's going to do it with the payout that he wanted. Right. He's going to get the $300 million. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of uncertainty about where this quote-unquote merger is. Jay Monahan spoke at Deal Book Summit this year. Um, I listened to his whole interview with Aaron, Andrew Ross Sorkin. Mm-hmm. And my my understanding of the merger now, which I think is different than what it was at the time, was that the merger was basically a commitment to negotiate a, a possible merger. So the the commitment was that the PGA would take over Live potentially, that Live would put in the investment and get a seat on the PGA board, or that Saudi Arabia would get a seat on the board. But from what I understand, Jay and Yasser, the the PIF investor, they're still negotiating all of this. Nothing has been concretely determined, written in paper, or signed yet. Whether these two tournament, whether these two leagues are going to operate separately but under the same committee structure, under the same leadership, whether there's going to be a merger, whether the PGA is going to somehow buy back Live and some and, and bring them back in, we don't know. We really do not know. Um, I think Rory's hope is that this merger happens, but I think in the short term. 
these players are still treating these two things as separate. And maybe that's a lack of right. faith in what Jay Monahan is trying to do. Or maybe it's just maximizing the short-term opportunity to to take this cash while you can. But the reality is that he's also getting an ownership stake so that if there ever is a buyback, if the PGA buys out live, he's going to profit again. He's going to get mm-hmm. money from that. Or if, if someone else buys out live, he now has an ownership stake in the team that he's starting with live. So it's obviously very profitable for him. Um, it's very discouraging for us. And I think that we're kind of at a standstill here where now that the cross-pollination between the PIF and the PGA Tour has happened, there's no more moral high ground for the PGA Tour to take as compared mm-hmm. to Live. And so now, as players start to trickle to Live, the PGA does not have the moral high ground to say this is wrong. All that they can argue is that the PGA Tour is still a better product than Live, which I think is still true. But it's certainly less true now than it was a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. I think that's exactly right, and I think you know what we're dealing right now with the after effects, obviously, of Saudi Arabia basically winning the battle for golf, right? And so the question is, ultimately, the question is, what is what do the Saudis want out of this? I think is the question we have to always keep coming back to here. Um, do they want a permanent stake? in basically running this sport or do they want just some level of, you know, finances coming back to them and maybe having events in Saudi Arabia. If the Saudis want to be a backroom partner, then I can very much imagine a scenario where they structure a deal where the PGA tour basically buys back all this stuff, but in a way that the Saudis kind of have backroom ownership of the tour. Um, Yeah. I think there's also a possibility that maybe they want. It seems to it would seem to me to not make sense to replace the PGA Tour with Live Branding because of just the the brand power of the tour. Still, I don't think anyone would argue that Live has a stronger golf brand than the tour, especially in terms of like the courses and things like that. Um, so I think it would be it would be a strange business play if they tried it in that way. I personally think that what we're going to end up with in ten or fifteen years is a solitary PGA Tour probably again, um, but potentially even majority owned by the Saudis. Yeah. Yeah, which, again, was not the initial... uh, That was not part of the initial uh, verbal agreement that that Liv had made with the PGA, or that PAF had made with the PGA. It was that they would have a a, a minority... A a huge financial investment, but a minority Mm -hmm. controlling share. But we continue to see this power switch, and with this decision now, that's just another bargaining chip for for Yasser when they when he and Jay next meet to discuss it. So yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right. And I think just briefly before we uh, we take a more positive spin to end this episode, um, yeah. I do want to talk about this briefly. I read a really interesting article um, from The Verge, the tech journalism um, outlet, and they did a long read on the Saudis buying out esports teams and investing in video game companies and things like that. Um, and it was something that was not on my radar at all. And I have not, up until I read that article, I had not seen a single thing about the Saudis even considering this. Um, but obviously we've talked about video games and esports before. Um, there are video games are an enormous industry and esports are an enormous industry. However, Esports teams and esports leagues have kind of teetered a little bit 
since the pandemic. They've not been as financially successful as um, it seemed like they might be. And that means that a lot of teams, a lot of organizations are often struggling for finances. And that is the exact spot that the Saudis like to catch institutions. You know, they come, they show up, they say, you're really struggling. You're going to go out of business. Here's a bunch of money. Why don't you let us take over your business and you can proceed with our financial backing? And we're seeing that happen in the esports world right now. I think that's just something to keep an eye on. Um, and good work to The Verge for reporting on that because that's just something that I have not seen even discussed anywhere else. But, you know, the Saudis have a really effective strategy of tackling basically vulnerable institu- cultural institutions, and they're doing it across the board. Yeah, not, and not just vulnerable institutions, but institutions that have a potentially huge market share. Mm-hmm. You and I did a podcast about how just how big esports and gaming is in the sporting landscape. And it's one of the most under the radar huge institutions in our culture is right. just how many people are part of this gaming craze. And so it doesn't get much coverage from the traditional media, particularly traditional sports media. Um, but they're getting good value for their investment and they're getting a huge potential market of eyes because that is a big, big world the esports world is. So, yeah. John, to end this on just the, the highest note possible. <laughs> And I, I think this might be my favorite sports story of the year, um, in all seriousness, because That's I love That's really this, strong, but I love it. I love this player, Yep. and I love what he's done, yep. and this contract is better than I ever could have dreamed that it could be. Mm-hmm. Um, when I've talked to my friends about Shohei Otani as he's entered his first big free agency this year, they've asked me what I thought he deserved, and I said that he deserves to be paid the highest annual salary for a hitter and then plus the highest annual salary for a starting pitcher and that's basically what he's gotten um he has gotten 10 years 700 million dollars and i i just think that this is so cool because if you split shohei in half he is the best hitter in baseball and he's being paid like it and on yep. top of that, he's the best pitcher in baseball, and he's being paid like it. And it would have been so predictable if someone had given him a salary that's a little bit more than Trout or a little bit more than Harper or maybe around Max Scherzer's per year, and they just call him a little bit of both. But no, they, they've actually compensated him as the player that he is, which is both of those things. And it's, it's, it's by far the biggest contract in the history of sports. I mean, the, the the previous closest, I believe, was um, wasn't it um, Patrick Mahomes at five hundred million for ten years? Oh, probably, probably. So fifty per, and he's now make he's going to be at seventy per. Well, no, it couldn't have been Mahomes because there would be another one. It would be it'd be Hertz now, before that, right? Oh, that's right, that's right. Yeah, right, James, we had yeah, all, yeah. all those big ones. Yeah, but or still, Herbert. I mean, not close to this. So Mm-mm, not even close. That, Let's underline that again: the biggest athlete contract of all time. Yeah. All time, ever. To, to our guy. <laughs> Shohei Otani, who's just a lovely guy. I want to do a little shout out um, to what I... I said this earlier as a joke. What I do really feel like is our kind of big brother podcast in the media world is the wonderful Pablo Torres. Pablo Torres finds out. Pablo Torres finds out. Uh, I would like to say that 
in many ways, we've been doing this for years before he got um, to this sphere of cultural issues and uh, sports conversations. But he's now doing it at levels, you know, with interviews that we could never uh, we could never pull. Um, so wonderful podcast. Um, and in a recent podcast, he discussed how Otani is basically an icon because he refuses to speak to the media almost at all. Yeah. To the point that he wouldn't even reveal his own dog's name, which I just think is hilarious. Yeah, he wouldn't even talk about which teams he was meeting with during this Mm -hmm. free agency. He is like, we've talked about Messi being like a superhero, but also like someone who really doesn't want to be a public figure. And I think Otani is a very similar, just like pure athlete who just wants to be a good guy. He wants to be left alone and he wants to be great for the sport of baseball and even though he doesn't talk to the media a whole lot i think it's unquestionable that he's fantastic for the sport of baseball and he is being paid as such maybe otani will make me watch dodgers games that's possible i hardly watched any baseball this year but like the thought of otani being in a good team that might just that might just do it for me and i think the coolest thing about the story chad yeah. I think it's what makes you so excited about this story. Yeah. Is that Otani, with the biggest salary in the history of sports, has done a very remarkable thing with that salary. Yeah. What what has he done? Yeah. What what Shohei has done is decided that not only can he profit, but the team can profit too. And what he's done is deferred ninety seven percent of his salary to begin kicking in at the end of this 10-year contract. Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying is that for the duration of the next 10 years, when he is under contract and actively playing for the Dodgers, the the allotted term that he is expected to play baseball for the next 10 years, he will be paid $2 million per year of the $70 million that he is owed per year. And for the next 10 years after he has retired or signed another contract, whatever else he wants to do, he will be paid $68 million per year until the year 2043. Mm -hmm. What that does for him, besides mean that he gets the greatest retirement package of all time. (laughs) Unquestionably, yeah. Besides that, that for him. (laughs) Is it means that the Dodgers can buy another great player or two mm-hmm. on top of who they already have and who they already have Mookie Betts, Freddie Freeman, serious MVP talent. And by deferring his salary, they can get another one or two amazing all-star caliber players. They can get another Cy Young caliber pitcher. He has given them the flexibility to spend and spend and spend because frankly, he doesn't need the salary right now with his endorsement deals. Mm-hmm. He's he's obviously a guy who lives a pretty simple lifestyle. He's not very flashy. He's not very showy. He's He can live within his means. He's a great businessman. He's got endorsement deals. He's going to be fine. And he's helping the team maximize this window while he is still in the prime of his career His arm is getting healthy. He's ready to go to the extent that I think the Dodgers are in, I mean, dynasty mode for the next 10 years. Like this has to be, I think this has to be three world series in like seven or eight years. I feel like that's gotta be the expectation. It's the, it's the minimum. If, 
if he stays healthy, I think that 100% will happen. Obviously, there's like a little bit of an injury concern with him getting another injury and the yeah. fact that he has double the workload of a normal player, essentially. Um, but still, that being said... But even even Shohei Otani with an injury concern is still the MVP hitter of the year. All that means is that he doesn't. I mean, that's pitch. true. That's just objectively true, right? Which is <laughs> insane, right? That's like that. That is a wild. It's a wild fact, and I think it's like the funniest thing about this to me in comparison to the Rob story, right? We have one guy who is willing to sell out his sport and sell out. I don't want to like couch everything too strongly, but like. He's a sellout. End of story. Yeah. Yeah. For $300 million. Shohei Otani has been paid over double that and is basically at the same time, he's not giving it away. He's a good businessman. He's going to get a lot of return for this. But he's doing the best he can right now to make sure that his team succeeds above himself in yeah. the present. Yeah. And he'll get a future payoff too. He's not sacrificing his future income. But he is making the best sporting choice for his team so they have the best chance of winning. And, like, we've heard about that, I guess, sometimes with Brady at the Pats keeping his salary down a little bit so he could keep winning. But the scale of that compared to Otani's salary is just off the charts. And it's not even like the Dodgers offered, like, asked for this. This Otani Otani volunteered this. Yeah. (laughs) For the to benefit the team. He said. Can I defer this money, please, so that you can buy more talent? The Dodgers are getting the perennial MVP and Cy Young contender for $2 million a year for the next 10 years. Like, this is literally, this is like Messi basically coming in with the salary that Miami offered him and then being like, actually, let's just bring the entire Barcelona team right now over to the MLS and just don't pay me anything. defer my payment? Yeah, can just you don't waive my payment yeah. so that other people can get all this? It's it's amazing. Well, remember, was it, remember when people were like, "Why isn't he offering to you know go on a free to Barcelona so that Barcelona can take him on and yeah. then be great again?" And what's crazy is like Otani is not going in a free, but for an athlete of his caliber, it's close enough, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's basically doing what we were like. There's no way Messi would ever do that in real life in the MLB with also the biggest salary of all time. I, when when I was talking about this, like I said with my friends, I struggled to think that 700 for 10 was possible, but it's kind of what I wanted. Mm-hmm. It was kind of what I was hoping for. I told you I kind of wanted a little bit more. I, I wanted it to be the literal annual per of Mike Trout plus Max Scherzer, which it would have been $79 million per year. We didn't quite get there, but we got pretty close. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it's just it's just awesome. I, I Some... really, really want him to have just the most success. I'm, I, I root for him as hard as I root for any athlete in any sport right now. When have you ever rooted for someone to make $700 million? Like, that's one, a sign once. of a good person, right? <laughs> Literally one time. It is a one out of one time that you've been like, you know what? You deserve to make the entire income of a small nation. <laughs> <laughs> He's just the best. I'm just a big fan of his work. Yeah, he brings the light to Japan. He brings the light to America. And I think we should we should end this episode on the note of another cultural icon that has brought joy to Japan and also brought joy to America. <laughs> From one Japanese icon to another, John. Um, I think 
to me, this film has been, I think, the breakout hit of the year for me. The one that I maybe was flying under the radar, I wasn't sure or knew as much about. And I, I go into the theater on a Tuesday night to watch Godzilla Minus One. And mm-hmm. I leave believing in the power of movies again. <laughs> in a you year... You didn't believe in it after the rest of this year already? Let me, let me rephrase. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I believe in the power of the visual spectacle again. Mm-hmm. Um, we t- we've talked about the creator as a, as a good sci-fi movie with good effects. We've talked about avatar, the way of water as continuous at the standard. But as we continue to slog through the, just, just the most drab year of the Marvels and Shazam Fury of the gods and Blue Aquaman Beetle, this, this trailer for Aquaman two, which just looks like the worst thing I've ever seen. Even Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, which you're like, it still looks terrible, but at least it has some like heart and soul in it that makes it at least palatable. And here we get from a studio in Japan on a budget of $15 million, Godzilla Minus One, which is one of the best looking, coolest Godzilla movies and one of the coolest blockbusters I've seen this year. It is a visual feast I think it has a, a tremendous story about post-war Japan. Um, we can talk about that a little bit more if you want to. <laughs> but it just has everything you want. And every single scene with the titular Godzilla, you can feel the breath stop and your heart is beating and you're you're just completely lost in the visual spectacle. There's, there's two scenes in particular. One in which he takes down like an aircraft carrier and another where he first uses the atomic breath, and you're just like, wow. I can't believe they, they still make him like this. It's definitely okay. a cruiser. It's not an aircraft okay. carrier. Whatever it is. Get your ships right, Chad. Come on. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no, no. In all seriousness, he's not exaggerating. The Godzilla scenes what in which he attacks ships and also it's attacks the city of Tokyo yeah. are genuinely electric. Like... They are at the top of visual spectacle of the year. Like Trinity it's, Test, it's still at the top for me, you know. But it's like it's right there, which is it's like a it's lot. It's the to first say. time you see the T Rex in in Jurassic Park mm-hmm. type of stuff. Yeah, it's it is genuinely amazing. I am not as high on this story because what's interesting about this, right, is that it's set in post war Japan, which is an era I love. Um, it's a fascinating era for a culture that's almost unprecedented in world history and in terms of nuclear devastation is unprecedented in world history obviously yeah um and so the whole idea of godzilla is sort of a response to that era and you know i did not grow up as a godzilla person this is the first godzilla movie i've ever seen um and so i want to i want to go back Right and see and see more, but I do feel like maybe the Godzilla scenes themselves will not be as good as this one. Um, everyone was very excited. And this is by one negative. Everyone was very excited about the fact that there was an emotional story in this movie. I am still not convinced that Godzilla fans have just never seen a good story before, and they have a story in their Godzilla movie, and they're like, "This is the most amazing thing I've ever seen," because I really don't think the story was that good. But the Godzilla parts were incredible, um, and that's what counts. So we can all we can all be unified on that. 
I would every single mutual film critic and movie fan that you and I share in common disagrees with you. They can all be wrong. I, and said, you know. I, I would say that this is a situation where you might want to see where your um where your where your sights might be a little bit out of alignment because you you clearly missed the mark on this one, and uh, it's okay. But um, it is okay. We can all agree. It like is. Yeah. It just if you if you get a chance to see it in theater, please do. It is unbelievable um it's been described as a as a searing anti-war movie which i i think in some ways it, it, the themes are really really interesting honestly in the wake of oppenheimer mm-hmm. um as people think about that this year that oppenheimer obviously didn't show any of the japan side and this obviously isn't a nuclear bomb movie but it is a movie with a similar idea and i think it importantly touches on the the way that Japanese culture kind of caused their own demise in World War II and how they have subsequently grappled with and corrected for the ways in which their own culture provoked even greater suffering mm-hmm. and greater loss of life than was needed. And in the midst of that story, which I, I, I personally find very poignant and very, very, very captivating, you also get just a, a visual a visual feast. A visual feast that is without parallel this year. I'm very comfortable saying that. It is like, and this is a great comparison, it is like if you took Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk and then put a giant dinosaur in it, which that's is just exact, a net win. That's exactly it's a net what win I for cinema. <laughs> it was Dunkirk with dinosaurs. <laughs> like, who doesn't want that? I would watch Thank you very much. an entire movie of only that. Yeah. Like no, yeah. no, Like, no emotions at all. Just dinosaurs and boats. Like, yeah. you could, I would pay so much money for that. So, you should at go some see point, it. Yeah, at some point in the next few years, we're going to do, I think, a sports and movie roundup of kind of the year. Kind of our, we, last year, I know we did some of our favorite sports stories. I think we should do that again and maybe do some favorite mm-hmm. movie moments as well. And I, 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 I know that both the Shohei Otani contract and Godzilla Minus One will come up again when we do that conversation. We are going to have to do a top 10 movies of the year, I feel like. I feel like that's really important content for us. I think so. On the back half of a, of a podcast, we should definitely, yeah. definitely mm-hmm. make that happen. Anything else um, for the listeners as we have now gotten through really, I think, a jam-packed podcast? and We have done best phenomenal done. work in uh, an average amount of time. Like yeah. we've, we're we're banging the, bang the mark. My recommendation is that you should go see... The Boy and the Heron that came out mm. last week, um, also set in actually mid-World War II Japan. Um, it's a very strange story at times um, that I don't always understand necessarily. Um, it is potentially the last um, Studio Ghibli or Ghibli film created by legendary um, animator Hayao Miyazaki. Um, and it's just really, it's trippy. It's kind of weird, but it has some of the talking about visual spectacle some of the most incredible sequences that i've seen this year like i didn't understand a lot of what was going on at times mm. but then there would be a, a, a shot or a an animation and i would just like my jaw would drop um so it's it's well worth your time even just as an artistic piece um and if you love studio ghibli movies then obviously you know it's coming out and have probably already seen it but yeah that's my right and I'll just say for for me and and I'll speak for me in my house over here. We are going to be locked into the second half of season six of The Crown, which mm. comes out on Thursday and is going to be the final six episodes of the entire series. 
the first four were extraordinary. Um, we haven't talked a lot about the crown. I don't think you're current on the crown. I have not watched um, basically any of it. Should I? Yeah. Oh, I, I think it's phenomenal. Would you I like get, it? Is it I John so. content? Okay. I think so. I mean, not only are you getting a, a, a pseudo history that's you know accurate for I mean has some takes some license, but it's pretty good. But you get some mm-hmm. incredible performances from some of our favorite British people, including Matt Smith and Claire Foy and Olivia Coleman, Jonathan Price, and particularly in season five of six, you get Elizabeth Debicki as Princess Diana. And she was incredible in season five, and she was absolutely extraordinary in the first four episodes of season six. Um, now it's going to transition toward um, the budding romance between uh, Prince William and uh, Kate Middleton, and also the potential marriage between uh, now then Prince, now King Charles, and uh, and Camilla. And so that's that's kind of where that's kind of where the show is going to end. For the first season, and so, so spoiler, so Princess Di has already died. I mean, that is, that is that is a historical event. Yeah. Okay. So I, I was just yeah. I, I had heard something about Princess Di like being the ending of the show, but I guess not. So. Okay. So so she was the so they they did four they did a four episode drop of season six, mm-hmm. and that that was the end of the Diana story. Gotcha. And now these final six are kind of moving back into the the main crown and into the current time almost because I mean. William and Kate's romance was like in the last like fifteen years, right? I believe that they're going like to like I don't I mean like like when they met in like high school. I don't think they're gonna go to like their wedding. I don't think I knew that. I'm clearly not up to date on my royal family history because I had no idea they knew each other in high school. Okay. Yeah, that's just that's what I'm hearing that's a cool fact. around that's yeah, so. fact. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Factoid. <laughs> it's gonna be good. Um the speculation I'm hearing is that is that it would end with like I said, Charles and Camilla's wedding mm-hmm. would be the okay. final final events of the show. So uh love it. Love the crown. We're we're super excited over here. So yeah. Anyway. Good stuff. Lots of recommendations for you guys. Lots yeah. of content. This is what you always, signed up for. Always more content. And um college football bowls in full swing and uh, Liberty will appear. Li- I'm excited. They're gonna for that, get even they're though Chad's done. They're gonna get trounced <laughs> on New Year's. Don't be a hater. It's gonna be good. <laughs> Don't be a hater. <laughs> I haven't played a ranked team all year, so we'll see how that goes. Yeah, it will be interesting, genuinely. But I will say, I'm gonna say it. Jamie Chadwell, though he hasn't played a lot of good teams, has done a very good job in the last three years, and that's an objective fact, regardless of how you measure it. Top three wins in D1 football is nothing to sneeze at, regardless of regardless of who you're coaching. So. And regardless of who you're playing, too, I guess. Yep, yep. That's, that's absolutely true. <laughs> fair, fair enough. <laughs> I can't, can't argue with you there, John. Can't um, argue with facts. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, um, please do take a moment to uh, subscribe to the pod. You can like, and, like it and share it with a friend. You can reach out to us on social media. And uh, until next time in a couple weeks when we are back, we hope that you all continue to be well. And be safe, and we'll talk to you guys later. All right. Cheers, guys.